This is a CBC podcast. People, they just want the major corporations. I feel like it should be the opposite. I feel like the small businesses, they're the ones who employ the local people. They're the ones who support the soccer team of your kid. Like, they're the ones doing it all. And yet somehow, we never get a tax break. Many small businesses struggle to survive, especially in the last few years. And some were hoping for a little extra help from the federal government. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, the Minister for Small Business, why she won't move back a looming deadline for loans. Also, we'll look at Florida's plan to bulk buy Canadian drugs. Some worry it would lead to shortages here. Why are they looking to us to lower their drug prices? But first, Canada could take in up to 1,000 people fleeing Gaza, but they'll need to list everything from their employment history to their scars and TikTok accounts. The immigration minister joins us to explain. The House is now in session. Palestinian Canadians desperate to get family out of Gaza got a glimmer of hope this week. The government launched a program that will let Canadians bring relatives here from Gaza on a temporary basis. But the process requires an extraordinary amount of information. Jihan Kunu lives in Ottawa and has been filling out applications for several family members. What I'm urging the government, like just to treat our families like others, just in the just little of fairness. If someone in the in our family in Gaza right now looking for basic necessities for food, for water, living in a tent, it's I feel embarrassed calling them or texting them, asking them to give me their name of supervisor when when they were 16 or 18 or or all their social media media account for them and their families. I feel they will feel like I'm not feeling their what they are going through right now. And getting out of Gaza is not guaranteed. Mark Miller is Canada's immigration minister. Welcome back to the House. Thank you for having me on, Catherine. Minister, very few countries are trying trying to do this, and it's been difficult just getting Canadian citizens out of Gaza. What makes you believe it's possible to get 1,000 people out? Well, first, I have hope. Uh, and I think in this situation where there's very little hope, we need to provide people with hope. Uh, and as, as a human, uh, as the minister of a crown of a country where my citizens expect me to do my utmost to get people out of the war zone, when they, particularly when they have a connection to Canada, uh, we have to try. I can't guarantee we'll get people out. We've had a, a very frustrating time just getting Canadians out and permanent residents out in the last three weeks um, in circumstances where we don't control the comings and goings of people at the Rafa gates where people are, are, are mostly congregated to get out. But we have to try, uh, and and this is something that we need to do because of who we are as a country, uh, and because there are people whose lives are at risk in in, in a humanitarian disaster. Uh, that comes with a lot of complications. One, uh, first, making sure we know who these people are. Uh, they are not Canadians, but they have extended family connections to Canadians. So we need to do some rigorous background work on them. Uh, this isn't the first time we've done this. We've, for example, used this type of information that we're requesting from people from Afghanistan. I'd love to jump in there, Minister, because we did just, we heard about that a moment ago from a woman who was trying to bring family here. You, you say you've used this process before. I've seen it referred to as unprecedented elsewhere. When you ask somebody, for instance, to catalog their injuries and scars and how they got them, 
Why does the government of Canada need to know that? Well, first, we absolutely need to understand someone's history, particularly when they're not Canadian, uh, when they are not permanent residents. I understand how onerous this can be, particularly working in an environment where people's lives are at risk. But we do have to take security precautions. This is a process that we have gone through, for example, in Afghanistan, to the best of my knowledge. And we need to make sure that we have the proper security protocols and screenings being done on people. Uh, the challenge of the situation, Catherine, is such is that we can't go into Gaza to do biometrics and to do the screenings there. So we have to have certain assurances about people before we can actually get them through Rafagate, which goes through its own set of screenings by Israeli authorities, uh, Egyptian authorities, and even a terrorist organization in Hamas to then proceed to a third country in Egypt where we do a second round of screenings and biometrics. So we need to know who we're dealing with, and that is not necessarily certain all the time. Again, as a humanitarian, I want to get these people out as quickly as possible, uh, but we can't compromise security, and that is just the reality of the situation. Once we get a sense of who these people are and do these checks, hopefully as quickly as possible, we'll get them out and hopefully get them to safety. So some of these detailed standards... I take your point about using the information to determine who people are, but is this something that other countries have asked Canada for, Israel, Egypt, in order to help understand who these people are? I'm not going to speak publicly about the security relationship we have with, with our partners, but certainly those countries will want to see who they are dealing with before they let anyone out, and I can't control that. We've had some frustrating back and forth with authorities trying to get our own citizens out, so I can imagine... Um, the screenings that they would want to apply, but I don't control that. And then again, in, in that scenario, this is the best we can do, uh, willing to improve it, willing to be flexible on a humanitarian basis, given the facts on the ground uh, and the flexibility that some of our officers will have to make uh, on-site determinations, a risk-based profile based on the age of the individual uh, and their own judgment. But again, uh, th- both security and the exigency of getting people out as quickly as possible are, are top of mind. I take your point that you don't control it. Would you say, though, that it is reasonable to ask someone who is living in a refugee camp, uh, struggling to find food against disease, irregular access to communications, to ask them, for example, who their employer was when they were 17 years old? Look, between... you and I uh, litigating these publicly is, is, is probably not something that uh, will we, we'll yield a consensus on either, on either side, but I think we need to know this information to make sure we know who we are getting. Uh, do we need okay. to be flexible in certain circumstances? I, I think we, we do just because of the situation on the ground. But again, it's very difficult to compromise the security of Canadians, um, and we need to know who we're getting out, particularly when we have had no contact as a country with them. And there will be some Canadians who will wonder about that question of security. So what would you say to them, um, given that this is a place where Hamas is active, the Canadian government has listed them as a terrorist group, what would you say to Canadians about the risk? Well, I don't think you need to speculate, Catherine. You just need to look at my social media feed to the extent that's indicative of anything in society. Uh, People are outraged at the fact that we are potentially bringing out a thousand uh, quote-unquote terrorists. Uh, That is not the case, but that sentiment is there and it's virulent um, and it's the result of how emotionally charged this particular war is, even as compared to others. We need to kind of take a look at that and see it for what it is. 
and also be able to make our own security determinations as to people. Uh, when you talk about people coming to Canada, it is not a right. But when it comes to people that are fleeing war, uh, we have a duty to act. We've done so with respect to the people that are Canadians and permanent residents. But now, as human beings, we need to extend our arms to those that have close family connections to those that are trying to flee the war. We are the only country, to my knowledge, that are doing this in such an extensive way. And in that sense, I think we can be quite proud of it. I want to ask you about another aspect of your file as well, uh, a story by the Canadian press this week, citing documents that show the civil service warned immigration levels were outstripping the housing supply and were linked to unaffordability. In hindsight, do you think the government should have done a better job listening to those warnings? Well, let's not assume that we didn't. And I'm not betraying cabinet confidence by saying that every time we discuss immigration levels, it, there are very robust conversations uh, in, in various directions and with various points of views around the cabinet table. And housing, obviously, is a consideration that we've been considering and, and analyzing and investing in as a government since since 2015. Uh, the housing plan we put forward at the outset was one that the federal government hadn't been doing in, in 30 years. Sorry, sorry uh, Minister, and, and, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying there when you say let's not assume that we didn't. I mean, the, your immigration targets are ambitious, right? H- half a million. Uh, you're suggesting that if it weren't for the constraints around housing, they would have been even higher than that? Well, look, I think we have different views around the table as to whether there are lower targets needed, uh, stabilizing the levels, or even going more ambitious. You only need to listen to the Bank of Canada to hear the work that we've been doing and the incredible work we've been doing in making the workforce younger. Um, That comes with the conundrum, uh, which is one around the supply of houses, magnified by the affordability challenge that the hike in interest rates has caused Canadians and the angst people feel every couple weeks or month when they have to pay their mortgage payments. People are very worried about being able to make ends meet, and we need to be focused on that. It isn't immigrants that caused the increase in the mortgage rates, but clearly volume is volume. Economists analyze volume, volumes, but I have a challenge as the Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship in dealing with something that is looming even heavier over our heads, which is the demographic curve, which is not trending in any country that is similarly situated very positively. But Canada, and you don't need to listen to me, the Bank of Canada has said as much, we have done a singularly good job in reducing that and making the work forced younger. Mm-hmm. It has been attributable almost 100% to immigration. That has come yes. with challenges and supply challenges that we are addressing and are making significant investments. But it is complex, uh, and it doesn't come with one easy solution or a slogan or any sort of uh, easy fix. It does come with investments and also pushing provinces and, and cities to do their parts. Well, and you see my colleague, Sean Fraser, doing that on a day-by-day basis. Before I let you go, Minister, I mean, on that question of how to address all of this, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says if he is Prime Minister, the growth in immigration won't exceed the housing stock, the number of doctors and nurses, the numbers of available jobs. In the fall, your government said immigration planning will take things like housing and health care into account. I know you and Mr. Polyev don't agree on much. Do you think that there is something of a consensus forming here, though? Well, someone like Mr. Polyev will offer a very uh, simple solution to a very complex problem and present the problem as easy and and blame someone. There's a difference between slogans and what the solution is. And I think the reality of it is that what is it that we need to do as a country to make sure that we are making the proper investments to increase supply and to make houses more affordable? It doesn't come with uh, giving a 
house to every person that comes in the country. Um, I would like to see what Mr. Polyev's actual concrete plan is. Uh, we have made historic investments in housing as the federal government. But again, this is a problem that uh, grew out of the 1990s, regardless of the federal government in place. We have our own responsibility as a party to assume on that. But make no mistake, the government has invested. Could we do it better, more efficiently? I think you see that rolling out in the last little while. Uh, okay. But clearly, the federal government has a role to play in addressing the supply side of housing, and it needs to do it uh, in a fashion that it hasn't done up to now, which is in a more efficient, effective, and with more money on the table. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today, Minister. Thank you, Catherine. Immigration Minister Mark Miller. You heard us discussing the temporary resident pathway for Gazans with family in Canada, but asylum seekers already in Canada know that bringing family here can take a long time. Critics say the system is backlogged and under-resourced. CBC's Craig Dessen spoke with one Haitian asylum claimant who's waited four years to bring her 14-year-old son to Canada. Here's his documentary. And a warning, it includes a reference to sexual assault. This photo was was hard to to see. I remember when he was young, when he was two years old. He, he never wanna sleep in his bed. He always wanna sleep on top of me and my tummy and my stomach. <laughs> In her Calgary home, Woodland looks at a picture of the son she hasn't seen in 12 years. But she keeps hoping that he'll be allowed to come to Canada soon. I love this guy so much. All my pain, all my sadness. There has been a lot of pain and sadness in Woodland's life. She grew up in Haiti, a country that has seen a huge spike in gang violence and hasn't had a president since Jovenel Moisi was assassinated two and a half years ago. The UN says that last year some 4,000 people were suspected to have been killed by gangs, and another 3,000 kidnapped. Woodland herself was kidnapped off the streets of the capital, Port-au-Prince, and brought to a notorious slum where she says she was raped. CBC is not using her full name because of the personal and traumatic nature of the attack against her, and she fears for her family members left in Haiti. In 2006, after when I left school, and then I was waiting for for a taxi to go home, and then they kidnapped me. And then, yes, they abused me. I was there for three days. You know, in my country, everywhere you go, you cannot hide for those bad people. A few years after the assault, she ran into one of the men who raped her. I see them and then they run after me. So I was warning, warning, and then they shoot close to me. When I go back home, I tell my mom I don't want to die. And then I tell my mom I need to leave the country. Widlen says she didn't have enough money to bring her three-year-old son with her and she didn't know what would be waiting for her on the journey. She thought it would be safer to leave him in Haiti, but she never thought they would be apart for this long. I just said goodbye to him, and then I spent time with him, and then I tell my mom to take him. But I didn't know I'm going to spend so much time. I didn't know I'm going to spend so much time without seeing him. 
Huilen originally settled in the U.S., where she married and started a family. She was living there illegally. Her husband had temporary protected status. But in 2017, President Trump announced tens of thousands of Haitians would soon lose that status. And she and her family made their way to Canada via the irregular border crossing at Roxham Road. So when I came to Canada, I got that hope. I'm going to have my son soon. Back in her Calgary home, Woodlen is getting her son's room ready. I'm going to put his bed here. I put it there. I made videos and then sent it to them too. Sent it to him. I was like, we're ready. <laughs> we're ready for you. Woodlen's mother and son fled Haiti three years ago themselves, ending up in the neighboring Dominican Republic. They talk every day, often sending each other voice memos. Mama. CBC News is withholding her son's name because Widlen fears for his safety. As soon as Widlen won her asylum claim in 2020, she applied for her son to join her in Canada, a right she has as a successful asylum seeker under Canadian law. Here's Widlen's lawyer, Jumen El Azmar. Once they are protected persons, their file is approved. It's a given. You know, there's no assessment. There's no evaluation. There's no negative uh, decision saying, no, we're not going to reunite with your family members. This, it's, it's a program just for family reunification. That's it. That's all. But at the same time, what's really infuriating about this program is that despite the fact that there is no evaluation or assessment in terms of admissibility, it's still the program that has the longest delays and waiting times. And these are the people who are the most vulnerable. Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada say the projected wait time of a dependent of a refugee who's still waiting for their permanent residence status to be approved like Woodland's son is four years. And in the last four years, life in the Dominican Republic has gotten harder for him. His school that he goes to in that area where there is a large population of Haitian residents was raided by the Dominican authorities. They were looking for Haitian children. So um, my client's son just hid under the desk in his classroom and was crying and screaming the entire time. And I'm, I'm not sure how, but he did manage to escape through the window and ran back home, back to his grandmother. And since that day, he has not been back to school. My son was playing with the kids. And then one of the kids say, Policia, Policia. And then he, he keep running because he was too scared. And then he fell. He broke his arm. My son's suffering, but they're scared to go to the hospital. I feel so powerless. I feel so powerless. She's called Immigration Canada, I think, once a week. She was on the phone, <laughs> on hold for two hours, trying to speak to an Immigration Canada agent, trying to see what's happening with her file, why isn't it moving, always receiving the same standard response. I've sent multiple web form requests, you know, asking about the status of the file and always receiving the standard template response that your file is in process. Do not contact us. So this is when I explained to my client, I think it's time now to take this to federal court and to request a court order of mandamus 
from a judge from the federal court because that's, that's the only solution I see now. IRCC said in a statement that the number of refugees is growing, creating more demand for Canada's resettlement programs. The department explained that processing times depend on a number of factors, some of which are beyond their control. Toronto-based immigration lawyer Justin Toe has clients in the same situation as with then. As long as I've been in practice, and as long as I've been working for other people in practice, this has continued to be a, a continuing complaint of protected persons in Canada. In fact, last fall, the Auditor General examined the Immigration Department's processing of permanent resident applications. The audit said Canada's huge leap in immigration is part of the reason for the delays. And the pandemic created a massive backlog that has been reduced but remains in the hundreds of thousands. Carol McCalla of the Office of the Auditor General worked on the report. And she says there's another problem for Widlen. They, in principle, follow the first-in, first-out uh, principle where applications are processed in the order in which they are received. But we found that IRCC, in fact, in 2022, placed a preference, a priority on newer applicants over older applicants. And so most of the applications that were decided were from newer applicants. And as a result, backlogged applicants stay in the queue longer and, and become more backlogged. According to Justin Toe, the issue with the long backlog is a lack of resources in the departments where staff are needed most. So, for example, there's an office in Tanzania and there's an office in Rome. Both of these offices get about the same amount of resources, but the workload in Tanzania is five times higher. This really affects people with family in sub-Saharan Africa most severely because it's those offices that tend to see this big gap between resourcing and demand. So for now, Widlen is stuck in limbo. She's still hopeful her son will arrive in the next few months. So she isn't going to take the government to court. But the delay is weighing on her. I want people to know that, especially the government, you are a country that promise you you're going to be reunited with your family and then not doing it. How are you going to feel? For The House, I'm Craig Dessen. We also asked the Immigration Minister, Mark Miller, about some of the issues raised here. Namely, that the government isn't working on a first-in, first-out basis with applications, so people get caught in a backlog. I asked Miller why. We do historically deal in the fashion that is fair to applicants, but when people are trying to bring in their family members, for example, uh, they have to become a permanent resident before they can sponsor them, and that there is some lag time between then and you know, the lag times that we've been dealing with in the last three years have been closing um, pretty well. The, the Auditor General has highlighted as much, but there's more work to be done. And you know, the historic demand to come to Canada is really something that our government has, has struggled with, our governments around the world have struggled with, but it's something I think we have shown over the last 12 months that we, we can address in a fashion that's, uh, that, that's quicker than before. Another concern raised was the staffing levels at processing centres overseas. We heard that the staffing levels in Rome are the same as in, let's say, Tanzania, even though there are more claims coming from sub-Saharan Africa. Do you think that's an issue that needs to be addressed? 
it does. I, I think there is a fairness issue that we need to address. 90% of the work that is done is not necessarily done on site. So it does not matter as much how much staff is in one particular area because you can do 90% of the work in satellite offices. But there has been a reality that is a little off kilter in some areas. And it's something that my department has been working on for some time and trying to even things out. Lots more to come on the House podcast. Florida wants to buy cheaper Canadian medication in bulk, but officials in this country are saying back off. We'll look at what's next in about 15 minutes. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of the House drops every Saturday. Next week, we'll bring a tough deadline for thousands of small business owners across the country. Anyone who took out a Canada Emergency Business Account, or CEBA, loan from the federal government during the pandemic has until next week to repay it, if they want a big chunk, up to $20,000, to be forgiven. For everyone else, interest starts collecting, with the full amount due in three years. Advocacy groups warn hundreds of thousands of small businesses may not be able to repay those loans, which could have big implications for the economy. Angela O'Brien is the owner of a lingerie store in West Kelowna, B.C., and Sarah Ann Mayotte was the owner of a cafe just outside of Ottawa in Castleman, Ontario, that has gone out of business. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Hello. Sarah Ann, why did you turn to a SIBA loan? Um, we really had no other options. We got declined for the Canadian wage subsidy. And at the time, I was paying my team very, very well, like above minimum wage, because as someone who's been in the hospitality industry for over 20 years, I understand the hardships around working in minimum wage sectors. And um, it was heartbreaking how much red tape there was, and I'm, I, I remember I must have had a, about a dozen of meltdowns in my coffee shop as I just got repeated the same line. It literally felt like we were just, uh, you know, data. We were just being repeated the same script over over again. And I really feel that I don't think the public understands the kind of like labor that goes into having a small business. The government does not make it easy for us anytime, all the time. I really want to talk about that, but I do just want to stay with the SIBA repayment for a moment. The money, you still have to repay the money at this point? Help me understand what's going on. So I'm going to be very blunt and honest. I'm actually going into bankruptcy. I've lost my home now. My home is going to be taken under the power of sale. It was kind of like a snowball moment where I kept trying to reach out to private investors, uh, try to do any type of other solutions to repay the money. And unfortunately, nothing came through. And this summer, I just had to accept that I had to just lose it all. So the government's not getting the money back from you because you have not, it sounds like you have nothing left to give. I have absolutely nothing. I work full time. And the reality of the matter is like, as much as the SIBA loan did help to pay for the wages, and it did help to pay for rent, when it came down to it, our numbers were so poor, I was losing between 5000 to $7,000 per month. I was just like, I'll never be able to get out of this alive if I keep going. 
Angela, I want to ask you, you were able to repay your loan. How did you manage that? Um, we had to work very hard with our financial institution. I suspected that I wouldn't be able to just cough up $40,000 cash on time. So we started working with our bank to move us through small business, commercial lending, to increase our line of credit so that we would be able to pay it back in a timely manner. Now, I've been able to pay back the $40,000 and receive the $20,000 grand. However, the fact is, I still owe the bank $40,000. Yeah, the loan hasn't entirely gone away. You're still on the hook for a lot of money. Absolutely. And while we have had two record years for sales, the cost and the expense of running business has increased astronomically. So actually, yeah, we've brought more money in, but we've made less money. A lot of businesses were hoping that the government was going to give another extension and push back that date, although the parliamentary budget officer noted that that would have cost the government a year-long extension would have been almost a billion dollars. Do you think that that's something the government should have done, Angela? I really think so. Um, small business, it's always the line, we're the backbone of the Canadian economy. And and first of all, my heart goes out to you, hun, as a sister in the service industry. It's hard to hear that kind of thing. Um, at the same time, you know, yeah, it would have cost them a billion dollars, but how much money is being wasted in all this red tape mm-hmm. and bloated bureaucracy? I mean, small businesses, we have no choice. We have to run more efficiently. Things get thrown at us. I mean, this last summer, I'm in West Kelowna. Our city was ringed by a wildfire that decimated our town. I lost all my stock to smoke damage. We had to start over again. And, you know, that's what small business faces on an ongoing basis. But there's absolutely no understanding of our government what we actually go through. And and I don't think it's necessarily the politicians. I think it is how the civil service is set up and how obtrusive it is. And sometimes it feels like small businesses in front of a firing squad and which governmental department agency is going to take a shot at you. A firing squad. Mm hmm. Are you And you agree, Sarah? Oh, I completely second that thought, yes. I feel like uh, it, it's like the world is against us. It's like people, they just want the major corporations. You know, I feel like it should be the opposite. I feel like the small businesses, they're the ones who employ the local people. They're the ones who uh, buy the newspaper ads. They're the ones who buy the radio ads. They're the ones who support the soccer team of your kid. They're the ones who are going to cater your events. Like, they're the ones doing it all. And yet somehow, like, we never get a tax break. (laughs) So so let me just push back a little bit and say some people might go, well, listen, there was SIBA. You talked about the wage subsidy. There, there have been efforts to help. How would you respond to that? I think it's a I, very dreamy picture. <laughs> <laughs> Angela, you want to get in here? Yeah, I, I just I, I think the reality on the ground, there's this idea that you open a small business in Canada and you wake up at 10 a.m. and you go into the office at 11 and you come out at <laughs> two and you make a million bucks in your first hour open. Come on, it's the Hollywood dream, rags <laughs> to riches story. And that's not the case. Running a small business in Canada, trying to keep up with provincial government changes, federal government changes, not to mention providing your service and Mm -hmm. what you're there to actually do and make revenue. And 
And it almost feels like we're the ones being preyed upon. You know, it's one of these things that we've really got to look at with all levels of government. How many kings are we accountable to? We only have a moment left, but we are going to speak to the minister for small business, the federal minister, in a moment. I'd like to know what both of you would like her to know, the one takeaway you'd like to express to her. Sarah Ann, I'll start with you. We're so much more than data. And, you know, life always has exceptions. There's no talking point. There's no script. There's no straightforward. And I feel like it's like that in all fields, right? That's a plea for more flexibility from the government then? I don't know what it is. I can't even tell you. I think it's like a plea for human humanization like human decency yeah yeah Yeah. and i feel that with the digitalization of everything it's like it's making it a lot easy to just you know delete you angela what would your message be so mine is a little more hardcore i would love to see and I, i think back to the british series on tv called yes prime minister and i remember there was a line where the head civil servant was speaking to the prime minister, and he looked him in the eye and said, with all due respect, politicians come and go, civil servants last forever. I really feel that if the government wants to help small business, they need to start refining and reorganizing the civil service that deal with small business to run more efficiently and effectively like small businesses have to. Okay. I really appreciate you both taking the time to tell us your stories today. Thank you. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Thank you for getting this out there, Catherine. Really appreciate it. And my heart goes out to you, hon. Good luck to you. And please do not let this take you to the mat. You know what? Sometimes we get knocked down, so we come out to a much higher level. And I really hope that for you. Thank you so much, Angela. Have a beautiful day. That was Angela O'Brien of Esteem Lingerie in West Kelowna and Sarah Ann Mayotte, the former owner of Café Sucré in Castleman, Ontario. So what is the government's response to the concerns raised by small business owners? Richie Valdez is the Federal Minister of Small Business. Welcome to the House. Thank you so much, Catherine, for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, a lot of businesses had been holding out hope that there was going to be an extension on the SEBA loan. There's just days to go. It seems pretty clear, Minister, that that is not happening. But why not give them more time? Thank you, Catherine. Uh, First, I want to acknowledge both Angela and Sarah, and I do appreciate them coming on the show and sharing their input um, and how they're feeling right now. As a small business owner myself, during the pandemic, I recognize the challenges that they're going through, and I too was there as well. Uh, When we're talking about SEBA, small businesses, you know, they've benefited from three years now from having this interest-free loan. And I think it's incredible that we've been able to support nearly 900,000 Canadian small businesses through this program. And I need to make a few things clear because in some cases, small businesses are still not aware of all the options that they have available to them. Uh, So first and foremost, January 18th is not the deadline to repay the entirety of the loan in full Mm -hmm. if you aren't able to. But it is when they will no longer have access to that forgivable portion, right? It's it's as if they're seeing ten or $20,000 slip through their fingers in a way. So that, well, the January 18th deadline refers to when small businesses have to repay in order to qualify for the forgivable portion, as you mentioned, uh, that $20,000 is a third of the entirety of the loan, which can be forgiven and reinvested back into the business. And on top of that, we also announced several other options that small businesses have, which include the refinancing extension, so that if you can get your loan refinanced uh, with the financial institution by January 18th, 
they have through to March 28 to still qualify for the up to $20,000 of forgiveness of the loan. Mm-hmm. But that's not what business groups had been asking you for, right? They, they wanted more time. And so my question, Minister, is why did you say no? Was it just too expensive? Um, we had actually small business asked for the extension on the loan two years ago. So the original deadline of the SIBA loan was December 31st, 2022. We have since extended it because they've asked for the extension through to December 31st, 2023, which we did. However, I understood and we understood that small businesses still needed the support. They still needed help. And that is why we provided additional flexibility and options for them. Uh, that is both support for small businesses and which is time that they asked for. And we've balanced that with fiscal responsibility. And I believe that approach that we've taken is a good balance between those those two priorities for our government. You talk about fiscal responsibility, and I mentioned earlier that parliamentary budget officers report that said, you know, this, this could cost nearly a billion dollars. But business groups will argue that there is a pretty big cost to the economy if there's a wave of closures when business owners go, listen, I, I, I just, I, I can't keep going because of this. What do you say to that? The SIBA program was $49 billion of a program, and this does not include the other supports we've provided for small businesses like the rent and wage subsidies. We've actually provided over $100 billion in pandemic supports for small businesses from day one as soon as they needed our help. We've consistently been there for them, whether that was extending the deadlines when small businesses asked for help or announcing additional flexibilities, which we have done for the refinancing or the term loan repayment deadline. You say we've consistently been there for them. The business owners we just heard from say it feels like being in front of a firing squad when they're dealing with the government, which I mean, I I can't think of two things that are more opposite. Is that something you need to address? Is there a problem there? Well, I acknowledge that this is a challenging time. We've been there for small businesses in many different ways as well. We've reduced taxes for small businesses from 11% to 9%. And we recently announced that we finalized agreements with both MasterCard and Visa to be able to lower credit card interchange fees for those that uh, use credit cards uh, within their businesses by up to 27%. We've listened to small businesses. We've provided different ways for them to save money and put more money back into their businesses. The government has put billions of dollars into big businesses, right? I'm thinking of uh, deals like Volkswagen. What would you say to businesses who feel they aren't getting the help they need, but they're seeing the federal government making these massive investments? How do you explain that choice? There's a couple points that I want to address here. During the pandemic, again, we have to remember that Businesses, a lot of them had to close down. They've had to worry about their business during the pandemic. We were there for small businesses right away, whether that was wage or rent subsidies uh, and through the SIBA loans. We provided those to them, to Canadians, to ensure that uh, small businesses were able to keep their lights on, to keep their employees working, and to keep their businesses going. And in fact, they are here today because we provided them with that support. And that's really important to to really highlight because we were there for small businesses. I, I just and sorry, put, Minister, I want to pick up on that. Mm-hmm. You're saying you folks are here today because of what we did. Uh, I'm asking you about the concerns that they have. And you're saying, well, we helped you stay afloat. 
Well, I just want to say that we will continue to listen to small businesses and be there. And I want to reassure small businesses, again, we will continue to be there for small businesses. We've provided them with the additional extensions and flexible options that they do have today to help them get through this time. And I do want to stress, although the January 18th deadline is approaching, they do have three years to pay off the entirety loan at a low 5% interest rate to help small businesses get through this difficult time. Minister Valdez, thanks for coming on the program today. Thank you, Catherine. Richie Valdez is the Federal Minister of Small Business. The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, in the United States has approved a Florida plan to import millions of dollars worth of medications from Canada. The decision has been years in the making. It's an attempt to reduce drug costs. Here's Florida Governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. We won the fight, finally, after years and years with the federal government to be able to purchase less expensive drugs from Canada. And we will save $100 million plus dollars a year by doing that. But the decision has prompted fears here of drug shortages. Florida is a state with 22 million people. That's a lot of medication to supply. And it's not only the state vying for access to Canadian drugs. There are a handful of other states at various stages in the process with the FDA. This is effectively a raid on Canada's drug supply. British Columbia Health Minister Adrian Dix is worried, but he's pretty confident pharmaceutical companies won't be sending drugs south of the border anytime soon. We'll get to the federal government's position in a moment. But first, why does the United States have an eye on Canadian medicine? Larry Levitt is the executive vice president for health policy at KFF, a nonpartisan health policy organization in the U.S. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me. So how hungry are these states for Canadian drugs? Well, I would say very hungry. The, the price of brand name drugs in the U.S. is about triple on average what they cost in Canada. So it's not surprising that states have been looking actually for decades to, to try to look for ways to import cheaper drugs from up north. So you talk about the fact that this is, is something, a conversation that's been going on for decades. How significant was this FDA decision then? The FDA decision is, is quite significant. I mean, this discussion has been going on for years, but the FDA has been a, a stumbling block. So this FDA approval of Florida's plan, uh, you know, is, is the first time that the door is now open for potential importation of cheaper drugs from, from Canada to the U.S. And as you mentioned, other states are, are quite interested in doing this as well. Now, as you say, the appetite is there, but there's the challenge of actually making this happen. The federal government here in Canada has said no to importing, uh, exporting drugs rather, to the United States if it would put the Canadian drug supply at risk. And we should be clear that in the case of Florida, for instance, they're talking about drugs to supply Medicaid, right? This is the the bulk purchasing, so significant quantities. What are some of the barriers on the U.S. side to this going forward? Yeah, there there are a number of barriers. Uh, I mean, the drug industry can stop this by not selling drugs, which could potentially lead to to shortages in in Canada. But there are some regulatory barriers as well. For example, Florida would have to submit approvals to the FDA for each drug they want to import. They would have to ensure and monitor the quality of of those drugs uh, and make sure that the labeling on the medications follow U.S. FDA rules. So, you know, the the, door is now open, but this is still a ways from actually uh, happening. So if 
there is so clearly a no from Canada in all of this. And, and that this is not the first time that there's been pushback. This is something Donald Trump raised and the Canadian government, um, you know, was, was very clear about the pushback at the time. Why do politicians like DeSantis keep pushing forward with it? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it sounds really good, right? <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> well, not to us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I should say it sounds it sounds really good here in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, why not try to mm-hmm. uh, you know get access to the same drugs at a third of of the price? And I think there's a a kind of political attractiveness to to this idea. I mean, some conservative politicians like uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida uh, are opposed to the idea of negotiating the price of drugs, uh, having the government do that, or uh, regulating the price of drugs like like they do in in uh, every other high income country. So you know, it just sounds better. Oh, just let's let the market work. Let's import these cheaper drugs from Canada rather than uh, regulate the prices. But in effect bringing in cheaper drugs from Canada is importing Canada's price controls. So it's, you know, kind of a backdoor way of controlling the price, but without having to explicitly say that. From where you're sitting, how likely do you think it is that this will ever become a reality? You know, I, I can see this happening maybe for some drugs, maybe in some states. There's just no way this, this could happen for a wide range of drugs everywhere in the country here because it just, uh, I mean, it would overwhelm your market and, and I don't think Canada would ultimately allow that. Okay. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your perspective today. Oh, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Larry Levitt is the Executive Vice President for Health Policy at KFF. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland was asked about the FDA decision earlier this week. Here's part of what he said. Understandably, the U.S., uh, has its challenges with its uh, with its drug supply and its costs, uh, but they uh, but but we will not allow uh, the U.S. at all um, to use uh, uh, Canada um, as a means of fixing that problem to the cost of our own ability to supply domestic supply. Uh, we have regulatory powers sufficient to ensure the protection of the Canadian drug supply, and we will do everything in our power to ensure that shortages do not occur. There is no way we will allow any jurisdiction, uh, be it a state or uh, another foreign jurisdiction, to endanger uh, the Canadian drug supply. Uh, That is not an appropriate solution to whatever challenges they may be facing. Just before we go, former NDP leader and longtime parliamentarian Ed Broadbent died this week. We took a look back through the House archives to share some of his own words. In the spring of 1989, just months after he led the NDP to win 43 seats, their best ever showing at that point, he sat down for an interview with the host of this program as he prepared to step down as leader. Here's Ed Broadbent speaking to the CBC's Judy Morrison about his popularity and the NDP's pursuit of power. The party in the last couple of campaigns has run... Uh, so much, invested so much in Ed Broadbent, the leader, the uh, the image, the concept. Are you beginning to wonder whether the party's going to be able to identify itself without you as the leader? Uh, I have no worries about that at all. Has there ever been a point where you maybe wondered if uh, that kind of role wasn't an obstacle to popular understanding of the party? So much emphasis on leadership that the party's identity was sort of washed over in a way. It is virtually inescapable 
in modern politics, whatever the party, for the ideas and policies of the party to come to be focused around the leader. I think it is inescapable. Now, to pursue your point, presumably, a lot of Canadians, anyway, got their understanding in national politics about those policies through me, in a way, uh, through newscasts and so on as a spokesperson. But what they have come to believe is not just Ed Broadbent, which a lot of people were saying, oh, it's just a particular leader's popularity. It wasn't. It was they had come to believe in the desirability of these policies and programs. Even some members of caucus have been criticizing the party for having ignored its principles or at least put aside its ideas uh, to accommodate the pursuit of power uh, over the past several years. Uh, I see you smiling, but I'm sure that that sort of talk uh, must uh, ruffle your feathers somewhat. Uh, is there a risk that the party is going to redefine itself yeah. away from the pursuit of power and sort of boil down to a third party again? Right. If See, this I, talk is allowed to, yeah, well, to you, you, take flight? You, you saw me smiling because I've, it's a, it is an old argument in every social democratic party since social democratic parties came in, into being in the modern world, uh, an argument that there is a contrast uh, between principle on the one hand and the pursuit of political power on the other. Once you go into politics, you have a moral obligation to get elected. Once you say to the men and women of a community and a part of this country, not simply I have the right ideas that I hope I can persuade you to, to, to accept, but I want to put these in place and change the law of Canada, you are going after power right away. And that means you have to talk to people. It means you have to communicate with them. In part, meet them where they are in their thinking to persuade them to come further. And ever since the party has come into being, again, I cited uh, J.S. Woodsworth, uh, Tommy Douglas, David Lewis, my predecessors, all understood that for us, it is a combination of principle and the pursuit of power that's crucial. Former NDP leader Ed Broadbent speaking to the House in 1989. Ed Broadbent died on Thursday. He was 87. That's it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.